This is Frontiers in Economic Research. I'm your host, Brendan Cunningham from Eastern Connecticut State University. This is Episode 3, recorded October 27, 2017. This podcast is a brief summary of recent research in economics intended primarily for scholars. I will include links to the papers in the show notes for those looking to follow up with a particular paper. If you have any feedback, please send email to feedback at fer.fyi or visit fer.fyi where you can leave comments. In this episode, I host a guest who discusses personalized medicine. I also summarize a few key NBER working papers which were released last week. This collection had a significant number in economic history. There will be one audio file containing all the working papers and one shorter sub-episode which covers developments in macro. There will also be one other short sub-episode covering one paper in econometrics. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Christopher Holt. Christopher is a economist at Charles River Associates, and um, he's on the show today uh, to talk about his paper titled Measuring the Potential Health Impact of Personalized Medicine. Chris, welcome to FER. Yes, thanks for having me. And uh, I think the research you're doing is is really, really fascinating. Um, it's in the field of um, health health economics. And it has to do with something which I think uh, you refer to a little bit as um, the topic of, of personalized medicine. So I was wondering if you could maybe just mention, you know, what personalized medicine is, kind of the, the overall framework of your paper and what you're investigating, um, and just kind of uh, lead us into an, an introduction to, to what you're working on. Sure. So personalized medicine... Uh, is also referred to as precision medicine, and they're very broad concepts, but they generally refer to the fact that some that there's some tailoring of a specific medical treatment in individual's genomic information or individual characteristics. And so it's a very broad topic because most treatments in some way um, have s- some tailoring to patients but this really comes out of some advances that we've seen in recent years in information to tailor cancer uh, cancer treatments and president obama initiated a medicine or precision medicine initiative to help push funding in this area and as an economist i think about not just uh, creating new treatments for patients with specific or genomic information, but also how can we use this personalized information to match patients to existing treatments, either with diagnostic testing, improving the sorting process between physician, uh, patients and treatments, or modifying existing treatments in some way. The question that I'm asking in the paper is, how much value is there to using this uh, personalized information, this precision medicine, to help improve the of patients to treatments? And 
the the way that I think about that is in a similar way that I would think about any uh, new innovation in pharmaceuticals or in healthcare, which is how much health impact these products bring to the market. But the extra dimension of personalized medicine is that harder just to think about averages. It's when we think about new pharmaceutical treatments, we might say that this treatment adds this many years of life to a patient and the previous treatment added this many years and we can look at that difference and think about how valuable that new treatment is. With uh, personalized or precision medicine, it requires a little more information about the distribution and thinking about how patients are matching if they have several treatment options. Uh, how do you decide which treatment is best for you? Or if you're faced with some risk about a specific side effect and you don't know your, you don't have information about what that, and whether you're susceptible to that side effect, how do you choose the treatment to be on? Um, and then how much, how much value is there to improving this matching process, improving the information that patients have about their individual treatment effect? No, that, yeah, that's and, fascinating. Yeah, so um, I think that the paper, I think about two specific things. As I mentioned, you can create new treatments, but I think that the way we think about creating new treatments is similar for precision medicine as it is for non-precision medicine, which is just that uh, in precision medicine, your treatment really only addresses a subpopulation. But the trickier thing to think about is, well, what's the value of improving the matching process between patients and treatment and improving uh, a patient's understanding of their risk for side effects or uh, potential negative impacts of treatment. Interesting. Interesting. So the way, and now I'm, I'm a little bit of a novice when it comes to medicine, but I do, my wife is actually a doctor. So sometimes I'm able to ask her questions about things. So the way I tend to think of it just as a layperson is that maybe there's some pharmaceutical and there's sort of like a standard of care associated with that pharmaceutical kind of a, like a boilerplate. Maybe that's not the right way to think of it, but like a standard way the medicine is used. But with personalized medicine, you're saying you kind of adjust that boilerplate um, for certain indicators. Is it is it mostly genetic uh, information or, or, or is it I behavioral? That, or? Sure. So I think that the way that people, I think the way that people think about it the most is genetic information. I think that's because... Um, and some advances that's something that stands out more than what we do right now which is a lot of times you don't go to the doctor and get a specific genetic test to understand which treatment you should take or um, which treatments might work better for you but i think that there's a lot of value and one thing that i've seen in my research is that there's a lot of value not just to the genetic component which is what a lot of people think about when you use the term precision medicine i think where a lot of the funding and resources are going improving the process from individual characteristics so if we can see something about you know, your disease how you might react to things based on you know the symptoms that you have or um you know things that things that we can understand about you specifically then that might improve the matching process to understand which treatments you take 
And obviously there's some of that already in uh, medicine and your physician thinks about, well, what, you know, how does it, how bad is this patient? What is this patient's history? Things like that. And the question is, uh, how much value was there by improving this matching process to a point that, um, you know, either through just using patient characteristics or some sort of diagnostic test. So there's a lot of things you can do. That's sort of why it's so broad. And I, I try to address a few different things, not just the genetic part, but also just improving, um, learning about what patient characteristics might predict about different treatment effects. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. So, um, and I think your the paper mentions that you kind of focus on um, one particular um, disease and and treatments for that disease, and maybe the role of precision medicine in that particular disease. Is that is that right? Yeah. So. Uh, I think about it first theoretically, um, just understanding, you know, how do we, how do you, how do you measure the potential impact of sorting patients? Um, and then I, I go to the multiple sclerosis uh, market to to look there and say, well, what's the potential impact within multiple sclerosis? And I, I think about multiple sclerosis for a few reasons. One is there's a lot of heterogeneity in diseases and treatments, and mm -hmm. The value of precision medicine or personalized medicine uh, is much higher when there is heterogeneity. That's sort of the point of personalized medicine is that you're capturing or able to use the heterogeneity and how patients react to treatments to, to improve treatment outcomes. Because mm -hmm. if everyone reacted the same, there's not much value. You know, if everyone takes an aspirin and gets the exact same response, then there's not much value in really understanding um, the differences. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing about multiple sclerosis is treatment options. So patients generally, on the first line of treatment, there's a group of uh, a group of treatments, and the patients are deciding between. I think there's uh, twelve total disease modifying therapies, and they're, you know, when you're going on your first therapy, patients generally deciding between about five or six different treatments, and so when they sit down, there's some decision to be made. If there's not treatments to decide between, there's not really much value in deciding which treatment to take. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a cost to searching in multiple sclerosis. So one of the things you might think of is, well, if I, maybe it's not that valuable to learn about my individual treatment effect on a particular drug because I can take one and say, well, that didn't work. Let me try a different one. Mm -hmm. Sclerosis, the disease progresses over time. So if you're not treating it and you're treatment isn't working, your disease is getting worse. You're not mm -hmm. curing the disease. So there's a, a cost of if I spend time on a treatment and this treatment isn't working, I'm progressively getting worse. Um, mm -hmm. There's also side effects from treatment. So even if the treatment doesn't work, it can have uh, negative impacts on how you're feeling. It can be costly. Another thing that was very useful when thinking about uh, personalized medicine is that Tisabri is a, a treatment in MS and it has a low but very serious side effect, which is PML that can be fatal. Mm -hmm. And Tisabri entered the market. Um, the, the side effect wasn't known. Mm -hmm. And so we can see what the market would have looked like for Tisabri in the absence of this uh, side effect. And then what happened is 
the, the pharmaceutical industry learned of this side effect from patients uh, from getting it, and the drug was pulled from the market mm -hmm. and then reintroduced about a year later. And so mm -hmm. we can see, well, if patients had uh, perfect information, we have an idea of how many patients would take to Sabri because we see the world where of uh, the side effect. And what happened is more than half the population that would have been on Tisabri ended up staying off Tisabri because of uh, this potential side effect. So the, as much, the more we can learn about whether individuals will have the side effect, the better we can uh, sort patients onto Tisabri or not onto Tisabri. Um, and so that's, you know, the, from the diagnostic side, that gives us an information how much value is there in a diagnostic test and diagnostic information? Um, and the Tisabri example suggests that there, there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of people who would uh, react differently if they knew whether they were going to get that side effect versus not getting that side effect. Absolutely. And, um, I think the last thing, and one of the things that is really hard in precision medicine, but you need to have is some understanding of whether treatment effects uh, are correlated across different treatments. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing as an economist that we don't really get to see. You don't say if someone's take, doing well on a treatment, we don't pull them off that treatment and say, well, right. let's try you on a different treatment and see if you do well on that one too. Um, but in MS, there's some information in clinical trials where if people fail, you can see how they did on their second treatment. Oh. And, oh. Uh, this was one of the things I found most fascinating when I was doing this research was uh, you'd think even within pretty and, uh, groups of treatment that they would be relatively correlated, but um, patients who fail on their first treatment mm -hmm. uh, do as well on their second treatment as patients who succeeded on their first treatment, meaning that they never uh, sort of quit it because of a failure reason. So they, the patients on their first treatment who fail look really good on their second treatment. Um, huh. Whereas we might think that if you failed on your first treatment, you would be more likely to fail on your, or maybe somewhere in the middle, but we actually see that these patients are doing really well on their second treatment, which suggests that there's a lot of value in the, the less correlated the treatments are, the more value there is to, to personalized medicine. Right. Now we know that, okay, well, if this one's not working, let's push you to the other treatment. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so in the, you have, I guess you have data on um, uh, individuals, patients with uh, multiple sclerosis and maybe the different treatments that they're on. And then do you, do you also have data on whether their physician is using some kind of uh, precision medicine strategy or, or how, do you, um, how do you measure that, that particular thing? No, so what we have, or what I have is um, a lot of clinical trials data. So there's a great data set at Tufts which aggregates up clinical trials data. So if you wanna see the um, all the published clinical trials data and what the distribution of treatment outcomes look like um, for multiple sclerosis, you can go and look through the data and you can get all the all the papers that are published essentially on the clinical trials for multiple sclerosis. And so that gives us the distribution of patient treatments 
Um, then, as I mentioned, some of these, these trials show you how patients do given failure. So we can have some idea of what's the correlation based on the fact that treatments um, failed on the first treatment or didn't fail on the first treatment. Um, and then the other thing we can look at is uh, ex post, whether these patients uh, failed or succeeded on their treatment to give us some idea. Because the question is, how much, how much health impact is there in the actual world, given, I think about it, given some level of precision medicine or personalized medicine, but nothing really, um, you know, given today's level, I guess is the thing, given today's level of personalized medicine, which isn't a lot, or there hasn't been much focus, how do we compare sort of perfect understanding um, of patient treatment effects? And so we can look in the real world and say, well, how many patients are failing uh, or succeeding on this treatment? Mm -hmm. And that gives us some idea of how much impact they're getting, and then um, compare that to if we create this joint distribution where we know the correlation, we know the treatment effects, we know the variance, then if we perfectly sorted patients using this uh, that would tell us sort of the, the perfect um, optimal precision medicine. And the idea isn't necessarily that you're gonna get to that, but it gives you some idea that if we can sort 10% better or 20% better than um, how the world looks today, that gives us an idea of how much value we would actually capture. Uh, okay, I see, I see that. Yeah, that's, so, I mean, one of the things I, I like to talk about sometimes too is the, or think about is sort of the policy implications of research. So, I mean, I think, um, I guess what what your research would also maybe speak to is how important it is to be able to improve sorting technology, be it through genomics or, you know, maybe even uh, doctor skills or doctor training or uh, continuing education for physicians. I mean, do you do you think about? Of course, it would be a. I guess at a certain level, it would be a cost benefit analysis. All of those things are relatively costly. Um, but do you do you think about that at all, or, or talk about that at all in your paper? Yeah. So the way that I think about that is um, the comparison I have is sort of if we had a dollar of research because all these things are going to cost money to create so if we have a dollar earn if we create a new molecule versus um sort of using that return to to create a diagnostic test versus mm -hmm. using that dollar um to inform our understanding of just using patient characteristics or data to to prove the health impact of a treatment and so it really depends on you know how the returns on that dollar depend a lot on the specific disease category so you know if there's one disease there's not much value in sort of using diagnostic test or if there's one treatment there's not much value in using diagnostic testing or improving sorting something like ms we we have a, we can get a better understanding because we have you know diseases coming into the market we have a general idea of how much r d might go into creating a new molecule let's say. Um, and so then the question is, well, how much uh, implied amount of uh, value we would get from improving sorting? And mm -hmm. so from my research, I find that perfect sorting is the equivalent about one and a half 
uh, high impact molecules. So if we think of the really important, uh, sorry, treatments, I should say, not molecules, but if we think of the really important treatments in MS, mm -hmm. uh, perfect sorting would be a little more valuable than that. And, mm -hmm. and then if we think of the treatments that aren't as valuable, um, there's about 15 treatments would be the equivalent of perfectly sorting patients on wow. treatment. Wow. Um, so when we think about how much we should put resources in, um, there's a lot of value to be had by just improving the sorting process. Right. And one of the things that, uh, well, how well can we convert, you know, information into improving patient matching and how well of, uh, how well have we done from things in the past? Um, and the thing that I think about is, well, you know, we're putting resources into personalized medicine, how to do it. And a lot of what we're doing is, you know, let's try to create this big cancer treatment for a specific genetic type or, um, you know, a lot of these things that are much bigger ideas, but let's also make sure that we put some resources into just the smaller, less exciting issues of matching patients um, to existing treatments because presumably that doesn't require as much R&D. It's very, very expensive to create a new treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, we also don't see a lot of, we don't see as much as I would sort of expect um, in this sort of matching process. So maybe there's a reason, is there, you know, maybe there's a reason why it's harder than I think um, as an economist to create better diagnostic testing or to create better matching processes. And that's something that, you know, doctors and researchers know about that I as an economist don't fully understand or um, know how to know how to think about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, the, you know, the research, your research kind of um, makes me think about a few things. So, I mean, one, one of the things I, I do research on media economics, and one of the things that um, has changed maybe over the past 10 or 20 years is that a lot of uh, new drugs are advertised what's called direct-to-consumers. Um, and then there's also this activity by pharmaceutical companies called detailing in which um, there's actual, you know, funding put behind getting information directly to physicians about new treatments or or how treatments might be used. Um, and, and then also, um, you know, having sponsoring um, situations where doctors can teach other doctors about these new treatments. So, you know, on the one hand, there's a view that this advertising kind of might just push up costs and it's um, sort of potentially this uh, wasteful uh, sort of reshuffling of demand across firms with no additional value added. But then the competing view is that um, this advertising is actually an important part of getting word out about treatments and um, how they should be used and, you know, how, how patients might even uh, be matched to them. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, I think there's a, a lot of different, um, a lot of different channels by which um, matching uh, might might be updated in some sense, and then of course you, you always hear the the, the phrase um, get, you know get a second opinion uh, with physicians. Like maybe just with by consumer consumers searching across different physicians, um, maybe they'd they'd have um, you know different matching outcomes. But like you said, you don't see a lot of that. Um, I mean, potentially uh, consumers. Um, maybe aren't internalizing the value of that search. So um, I think I think it's a, a very fascinating topic. Um, 
the um, the physician aspect also makes it a little more complicated because you know physicians have their own understanding and preferences and uh, they've had a lot of passive learning where they've seen a lot of patients they they have things that maybe you can't sort of teach someone or build in and they say you know they've seen tens of thousands mm -hmm. of patients with certain characteristics and they've seen how they react um that's sort of part of precision medicine but then if they're using that you know if they're sort of going on their own intuition versus sort of using uh, analytical tools then there are ways to add that and advertising is one way that you can definitely add information to to physicians to patients and um and improve and improve that matching process i think well that's that's very very interesting and just out of curiosity what was the initial inspiration for your research how did you get get involved in this topic or or begin to think about the the productivity of precision medicine and its potential benefits i i'd researched pharmaceutical innovation before and thought about the the health impact of new innovations in pharmaceuticals. And the thing that I had found was that uh, we value the, the value of things of innovations that happen after the creation of new molecules, which is really the most costly um, part of creating innovations. Uh, the value of the things that happen after we do that is is not only a, has been tremendously impactful, but has also been growing in influence over time. And so when we think today, a lot of people measure the value of pharmaceutical innovation and how many molecules we create, um, but we really do different things with the molecules that we create. We create uh, treatments in ways that are much better, much more efficient uh, than we did in the past. And so there's more focus today on molecule, but how do you take molecules and make really efficient um, treatment outcomes? And a lot of the value of that has been that you sort of create smaller, you know, you create treatments for subgroups of patients, or you think about um, how this specific molecule, which doesn't work for some patients or work for other patients, um, how we can create sort of more variety of, of treatments, um, more effective treatments. And as I was doing that research, one of the things I thought about was, well, we're not, you know, we think a lot about the average effect. We think about just molecules, but there's a lot of um, creating treatments out of what exists that uh, adds a lot of value. And so for small molecules, um, that really comes out in sort of these follow-on innovations, which is taking existing treatments and just modifying them a little bit. Um, and then very related to that is this concept of personalized medicine, which is, um, you know, how do we take and create uh, treatments for specific groups of patients, either because of their genetics or because of their treatment characteristics. Um, and so it uses a similar framework, but I think requires a little more thought about really the, the full distribution of patients um, and, and how patients react and how do you create the most uh, impactful treatments for the fact that patients are going to respond to things in different ways. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, Chris, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me on FER. Um, I think your research is, is fascinating and, uh, you know, there's 
Uh, health is a really, really critical topic for uh, economics these days in, in many, many different ways. So I wish you the best of luck with your research and, and thanks again for, for coming on the podcast. Having me. As I mentioned earlier, the title of my guest paper was Measuring the Potential Health Impact of Personalized Medicine, Evidence from MS Treatments by Christopher Holt. And you can find a link to the paper at link number one in the show notes. The first paper in the micro series is in the field of media economics. The authors ask whether news media bias content in favor of advertisers. Uh, I'll just observe that news uh, media have exist in what's called called a two-sided market. They have consumers and advertisers, and it's not always the case that the interests of those two align. There's supposed to be a firewall between editorial staff, uh, those that actually create the news, and the, sta the staff that actually sells advertising, but this paper looks at the strength of that firewall. The authors examine the relationship between advertising by auto manufacturers in U.S. newspapers and news coverage of car safety recalls. This context allows the authors to separate the influence of advertisers who prefer less coverage of recalls from that of readers who demand more. Consistent with theoretical predictions, the authors find that newspapers provide less coverage of recalls by their advertisers, especially the more severe recalls. Competition for readers from other newspapers does mitigate this bias, while competition for advertising by online platforms exacerbates it. Finally, the authors present suggestive evidence that lower coverage actually increases auto fatalities. The title of the paper is Advertising Spending and Media Bias by Durant, Knight, and Sen. And Beattie, excuse me. The next paper is a fascinating paper in the field of the economics of crime. The authors observed that Bogota, Colombia intensified state presence to make high crime streets safer. The authors show that spillovers outweighed direct effects on security. The authors randomly assigned 1,919 hotspot streets to eight months of double policing, increased municipal services, both or neither. They find that spillovers in dense networks caused fuzzy clustering, and they show valid hypothesis testing requires randomization inference. State presence improves security on these hotspots, but data from all streets suggests that intensive policing actually pushed property crime around the corner with ambiguous impacts on violent crime. Sort of like uh, whack-a-mole. Municipal services had positive but imprecise spillovers. These results contrast with prior studies concluding policing has positive spillovers. The title of the paper was Pushing Crime Around the Corner, and the authors were Blattman, Green, Ortega, and Tobon, and you can find a link to the paper at link number three in the show notes. The next paper is in the uh, area of the economics of education, and there's two papers in this area this week. The first paper looks at the experiment in Newark in which Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan launched a set of educational reforms supported by their gift. The authors use data from 2009 through 16, and they evaluate the change in Newark students' achievement growth relative to similar students and schools elsewhere in New Jersey. By the fifth year of reform, Newark saw statistically significant gains in English and no significant change in math achievement growth. 
Perhaps due to the disruptive nature of the reforms, the authors observed that growth declined initially before rebounding in recent years. Aided by the closure of low-value-added schools, much of the improvement was due to shifting enrollments from lower to higher growth districts and charter schools. In math, such shifts offset what would have been a decline in achievement growth. The title of the paper is School District Reform in Newark by Chin, Kane, Kozakowski, Schuler, and Steger, and you can find the paper at link number four in the show notes. The next paper looks like educational choice and the authors observe rapid structural transformation accompanied by a continual process of rural to urban migration. They suggest that this occurs in many developing countries. The authors construct a micro-founded dynamic framework to explore how important education-based migration is as opposed to work-based migration for economic development, urbanization, and city workforce composition. The authors then calibrate this model to fit the data from China over the period 1980 through 2007. The authors find that although education-based migration only amounts to one-fifth of that of work-based migration, its contribution to the enhancement of per capita output is larger than that of work-based migration. Furthermore, the increase in college admission selectively for rural students plays a crucial but negative role in China's development, lowering per capita output. The title of the paper is Educational Choice, Rural Urban Migration and Economic Development by Liao, Wang, Wang, and Yip. And you can find the paper at link number five in the show notes. We next have two papers in the field of health economics. The first of these deals with a very salient topic, which is immunizations. The authors examine the determinants of parental decisions about infant immunization. They use the exact timing of vaccinations relative to birth and estimate the effects of local pertussis outbreaks occurring in utero and during the first two months of life on the likelihood of on-time initial immunization for pertussis and other immunizations. The authors find that parents respond to changes in perceived disease risk. Pertussis outbreaks within a state increase the rate of on-time receipt of the pertussis vaccine at two months of age. This response is concentrated among low socioeconomic status subgroups. In addition, the authors find that pertussis outbreaks increase the likelihood of immunization against other vaccine-preventable diseases. These spillover effects are almost as large as the direct effects and are present only for vaccines that are typically given during the same day as the pertussis vaccine. This result suggests that healthcare access costs play an important role in parents' vaccination decisions. The title of the paper is The Effect of Perceived Disease Risk and Access Costs on Infant Immunization by Schaller, Shulkind, and Shapiro. And you can find the paper at link number six in the show notes. The next paper looks at how changes in the compensation uh, strategy for physicians might also change how they treat patients. The authors study how physicians respond to financial incentives imposed by episode-based bundled payment, EBP, which encourages lower spending and improved quality for an entire episode of care. The authors specifically study the impact of the Arkansas Healthcare Payment Improvement Initiative, a multi-payer program that requires providers in the state to enter into EBP arrangements for perinatal care. 
Unlike fee-for-service reimbursement, EBP holds physicians responsible for all care within a discrete clinical episode, rewarding physicians not only for efficient use of their own services, but also for efficient management of other healthcare inputs. In a difference-in-difference analysis of commercial claims, the authors find that perinatal spending decreased by 3.8% overall in Arkansas after the introduction of EBP compared to surrounding states. The authors find that decrease was driven by reduced spending on non-physician health care inputs, specifically the prices paid for inpatient facility care, and that their results are robust to a number of sensitivity and placebo tests. The title of the paper was Effects of Episode-Based Payment on Healthcare Spending and Utilization by Carol Chernu, Threndrick, Thompson, and Rose, and you can find the paper at link number 8 in the show notes. We now have a number of papers on in the field of economic history. The first deals with the 1896 presidential election between William Jennings Bryan and William McKinley, which I always understood was in part related to the theme of the Wizard of Oz. Apparently, William Jennings Bryan was represented by uh, the Cowardly Lion. In any event, uh, the authors observe that this election has gained new salience in the wake of the 2016 presidential contest. The authors provide the first systematic analysis of voting patterns in 1896 by combining country-level returns with economic, financial, demographic, and climatological data. Specifically, the authors consider the economic concerns of the populace with falling crop prices, higher interest rates, and railroad monopolies. They then show that Bryan did well where mortgage interest rates were high, railroad penetration was low, and crop prices had declined by most over the previous decade. Using their estimates, the authors show that further declines in crop prices or increases in interest rates would have been enough to tip the electoral college in Bryan's favor. But to change the outcome, the additional fallen crop prices would have had to been large. There is no question that economic grievances mattered in 1896. The title of the paper is Populous at the Polls by Eichengreen, Haynes, Jermeski, and LeBlanc, and you can find the paper at link number 8 in the show notes. The next paper has to do with economic history in France. The authors observe that during the French Revolution, more than 100,000 individuals, predominantly supporters of the old regime, fled France. As a result, some areas experienced a significant change in the composition of local elites, whereas in others, the pre-revolutionary social structure remained virtually intact. In their study, the authors trace the consequences of the émigrés' flight on economic performance at the local level. They instrument émigration intensity with local temperature shocks during an inflection point of the revolution, the summer of 1792, marked by the abolition of the constitutional monarchy and bouts of local violence. The authors' findings suggest that émigrés have a non-monotonic effect on comparative development. During the 19th century, there is a significant negative impact on income per capita, which becomes positive from the second half of the 20th 20th century onward. This pattern can be partially attributed to the reduction in the share of the landed elites in high emigration regions. The authors show that the resulting fragmentation of agricultural holdings reduced labor productivity, depressing overall income levels in the short run. The title of the paper is Emigration During the French Revolution by Dury, Frank, and Michaelopoulos, and you can find the paper at link number 9 in the show notes. The 
The next paper is a fascinating look at the economic impact of the Protestant Reformation. The authors use novel microdata to document an un unintended first-order consequence of this movement. There's a massive reallocation of resources from religious to secular purposes. To understand this process, the authors propose a conceptual framework in which the introduction of religious competition shifts political markets where religious authorities provide legitimacy to rulers in exchange for control over resources. Consistent with their framework, religious competition changed the balance of power between secular and religious elites. This transfer of resources had important consequences. First, it shifted the allocation of upper-tail human capital. Graduates of Protestant universities increasingly took secular occupations. Protestant university students increasingly studied secular subjects, especially degrees that prepared students for public sector jobs. Second, it affected the sectoral composition of fixed investment. Particularly in Protestant regions, new construction shifted from religious towards secular purposes. The author's findings indicate that the Reformation played an important causal role in the secularization of the West. The title of the paper is Religious Competition and Reallocation by Cantoni, Dittmar, and Yuckman, and you can find the paper at link number 10 in the show notes. The next paper looks at uh, trade in China. The authors observe that to explore the interplace between trade and institutions, they need to construct a staged development framework with multi-period discrete choices. They use this to study the colonization of Hong Kong. Based on the historical data and documents the authors collected from limited sources, they designed their dynamic trade model to capture several key features of the colonization process and use it to characterize the endogenous transition from the pre-opium war era to the war era to the post-opium war era, and then to the post-opium trade, opium trade era, which spanned the period 1773 through 1933. The authors show that while the low opium trading cost and the high warfare cost initially postponed any military action, the high valuation of the total volume of bilateral trade, the rising opium trading cost, and the anticipated increase in the demand for opium eventually led the British government to declare the opium wars. The authors also show that in responding to a drastic drop in opium demand and a rising opium trade cost, it became optimal for the British government to abandon opium trade soon after the founding of the Republic of China. The title of the paper is Dynamic Trade Endogenous Institutions and the Colonization of Hong Kong by Chung, Palivos, Wang, Wang, and Yip. And you can find the paper at link number 11 in the show notes. The next paper looks at the effects of emigration on labor markets. The authors observed that emigration could benefit landless village residents by reducing labor competition or conversely reduce productivity if skilled workers leave. They conduct ex an experiment in which they offered a subsidized transport cost for 5,792 potential seasonal migrants in Bangladesh, and they randomly vary saturation of offers across 133 villages. The transport subsidies increase beneficiaries' income due to better employment opportunities in the city and also generate the following spillovers. First, a higher density of offers increases the individual, individual take-up rate. Second, this increases the male agricultural wage rate in the village by 4.5 to 6.6% and the available work hours in the village by 11 to 14%, which combine to increase income earned in the village. Then there is a no 
infra-household substitution in labor supply, which they find. The wage bill for agricultural employers increases, which reduces their profit. Food prices increased by 2.7% on net, driven by an increase in the price of protein and offset. Finally, a decrease in the price of non-durables like prepared food and tea. The authors then observe that seasonal migration subsidies not only generate large direct benefits, but also indirect spillover benefits by creating slack in the village of origin labor market. The title of the paper is Effects of Emigration on Rural Labor Markets by Akram, Chowdhury, and Mubarak, and you can find the paper at link 12 in the show notes. The next paper, also in the field of labor economics, looks at techniques for ranking firms. It reminds me quite a bit of a uh, prior paper in which the authors used uh, revealed preference of uh, applicants to colleges in order to rank the colleges. In this paper, uh, the authors observed that est- and estimate workers' preferences for firms by studying the structure of employer-to-employer transitions in U.S. administrative data. The author's paper uses a tool from numerical linear algebra to measure the central tendency of worker flows, which is closely related to the ranking of firms revealed by workers' choices. They find evidence for compensating differential when workers systematically move to lower-paying firms in a way that cannot be accounted for by layoffs or differences in recruiting intensity. Their estimates suggest that compensating differentials account for over half of the firm component of the variance of earnings. The title of the paper is Ranking Firms Using Revealed Preference by Sorkin, and you can find the paper at link 13 in the show notes. In the next paper, the authors are interested in the question of scale-up. They observe that most randomized controlled trials of social programs, or RCTs, test interventions at modest scale. While the hope is that promising programs will be scaled up, We have few successful examples of this scale-up process in practice. Ideally, one would like to know which programs will work at large scale before there there are investments in those programs. But it would seem that the only way to tell whether a program works at scale is to test it at scale. The author's goal in this paper is to propose a way out of this catch-22. They first develop a simple model that helps clarify the type of scale-up challenge for which their method is most relevant. Most social programs rely on labor as a key. So social programs like firms confront a search problem in the labor market that can lead to inelastically supplied human capital. The result is that as programs scale, either average costs must increase if program quality is to be held constant, or else program quality will decline if average costs are held fixed. The author's proposed method for reducing the cost of Estimating program impacts at large scale combines the fact that hiring inherently involves ranking inputs with the most powerful element of the social science toolkit, randomization. They then show that it is possible to operate a program at modest scale, but learn about the input supply curves facing the firm at much larger scales. The title of the paper is The Economics of Scale-Up by Davis, Gurian, Halberg, and Ludwig, and you can find the paper at link 14 in the show notes. The next paper is in the field of finance. The authors observe that traditional banking is built on four pillars, SME lending, access to public liquidity, deposit insurance, and prudential supervision. This vision has been shattered by repeated bailouts of shadow financial institutions. 
The author's paper puts special depositors and borrowers at the core of the analysis and provides a rationale for the covariation yielding the quadrilogy and anal analyzes how prudential regulation must adjust to the possibility of migration towards less regulated spheres. Ring fencing between regulated and shadow banking and the share of liquidity in centralized platforms are motivated, motivated by the supervision of siphoning and financial contagion. The title of the paper is Shadow Banking and the Four Pillars of Traditional Financial Intermediation by Fari and Tirol, and you can find the paper at link 15 in the show notes. The first paper in the Macros series looks at the issue of artificial intelligence and the role of artificial intelligence in economic growth. The, paper, uh, the authors model artificial intelligence as the latest form of automation, which is a broader process dating back more than 200 years. They ask how will this affect economic growth and the division of income between labor and capital. Also they wonder about the potential emergence of singularities and superintelligence, concepts that animate many discussions in the machine intelligence community. The authors also explore how the linkages between AI and growth will be mediated by firm-level considerations. Their goal throughout is to refine a set of critical questions about artificial intelligence and economic growth and to contribute to shaping an agenda for the field. The title of the paper is Artificial Intelligence and Economic Growth by Agion, Jones, and Jones, and you can find the paper at link number 17 in the show notes. The next paper is another paper in the field of economic growth. The authors quantify the welfare impact of a permanent increase in the level of per capita income brought about by a temporary increase in the growth rate of GDP per capita following capital account liberalization. They find that in the immediate aftermath of liberalization, differences between the autarkic and integrated equilibrium consumption paths are large. Yet the welfare impact of those differences is small when using infinite horizon consumption streams to compute welfare gains. The author's results suggest that a finite horizon framework may be more appropriate and policy relevant for evaluating the welfare consequences of economic policy changes that induce temporary growth effects but have a permanent impact. The title of the paper is Does Capital Scarcity Matter? by Chari, Henry, and Musa, and you can find the paper at link number 18 in the show notes. The next paper is in the field of business cycles research. The authors observed that analysis based on a new measure of financial distress for 24 advanced economies in the post-war period shows substantial variation in the aftermath of financial crises. Their paper examines the role that macroeconomic policy plays in explaining that variation. The authors find that the degree of monetary and fiscal policy space prior to financial distress, defining space as whether the policy interest rate is above the zero lower bound and whether the debt to GDP ratio is relatively low, that space greatly affects the aftermath of crises. The decline in output following a crisis is less than 1% when a country possesses both types of policy space, but almost 10% when it has neither. The difference is highly statistically significant. The authors find that monetary and fiscal policy are used more aggressively when policy space is ample. Financial distress itself is also less persistent when there is policy space. The title of the paper is Why Some Times Are Different by Romer and Romer, and you can find the paper at link number 19 in the show notes. The next paper is in the 
subfield of consumption theory. The authors evaluate the consistency of two methods for estimating the effect of economic policy. First, surveying people to report the change in their behavior caused by policy, and second, inferring this change using reported actual behavior and differences in treatment across people. They find that both me methods have been widely used to measure propensities to spend. Using federal stimulus payments dispersed quasi-randomly over time in 2008, the authors find greater revealed preference estimates of spending by households reporting greater spending, and the two methods produce similar estimates of average spending. But counterfactually, reported preference estimates are not higher for households with lower liquidity. The title of the paper is Reported Preference versus Revealed Preference by Parker and Sulels, and you can find the paper at link number 20 in the show notes. The last paper in the macro series looks at the issue of computerization and immigration. The authors observe that changes in technology that took place in the U.S. during the last three decades, mainly due to the introduction of computerization and automa automation, have been characterized as, quote, routine substituting. They have reduced the demand for routine tasks, but have increased the demand for analytical tasks. Indirectly, these developments have also increased the demand for manual tasks and service-oriented occupations. The authors claim that little is known about how these changes have impacted immigration. In their paper, the authors show that such technological progress has attracted skilled and unskilled immigrants, with the latter group increasingly specialized in manual service occupations. The authors explain these facts with a model of technological progress in endogenous immigration. Simulations of their model show that immigration in the presence of technological change attenuates the drop in routine employment and the increase in service employment for natives. The title of the paper is Computerization and Immigration by Basso, Perry, and Rahman, and you can find the paper at link number 21 in the show notes. We now turn to the one econometrics-related paper in this group of NBER working papers. In that paper, the authors describe results of a pair of incentivized experiments on biases in judgments about random samples. They find that consistent with the law of small numbers, or LSN, participants exaggerated the likelihood that short sequences and random subsets of coin flips would be balanced between heads and tails. Also consistent with the non-belief in the law of large numbers, LBLLN, participants underestimated the likelihood that large samples would be close to 50% heads. However, the authors identify some shortcomings of existing models of LSN, and they find that LBLLN may not be as stable as previous studies suggest. The authors also find evidence for exact representativeness, ER, whereby people tend to exaggerate the likelihood that samples will nearly exactly mirror the underlying odds. The authors within subject design of asking many different questions about the same data lets them disentangle the biases from possible rational alternative interpretations by showing that the biases lead to inconsistency in answers. Bin effects are large and systematic and affect some results, but they find LSN, M NB, LLN, and ER even after controlling for them. The title of the paper is Biased Beliefs About Random Samples by Benjamin, Moore, and Rabin, and you can find the paper at link number 22 in the show notes.
This has been Frontiers in Economic Research. Thank you for listening. Listen next week when my guest describes the political dynamics behind war.